0: were the suffragists? What prompted the women's suffrage movement? And what ultimately led to women securing the right to vote? We'll answer all of these questions and more on this edition of Getting Schooled. I'm Abby Hornacek. In the great words of Martina McBride, this one is for the girls. On this episode of Getting Schooled, we are celebrating over 100 years of fearless womanhood. In 1920, the 19th Amendment was finally ratified, which allowed women the right to vote. But the passage of the amendment did not mark the end of the fight for women's rights. What many people don't know is that the fight for women's suffrage continued for several more decades until women from all backgrounds were granted that right as well. So who were the women behind the suffrage movement? What challenges did they face as they fought for the right to vote? And how did that activism inspire other movements? Here to provide some historical context to the movement is independent historian and author of Why They Marched, Susan Ware. And Susan joins me now. How are you, Susan? I'm fine. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for coming on, especially we were talking before. It's such a, a complicated topic. There's a lot to it, and you know history so well. So I'm excited to delve a little bit
1: deeper into this. Well, I'm here to share my expertise and my passion for women's history with your audience. Fantastic.
0: That's what we love to hear. Well, you know, we, we have an incredible privilege living in this country to be able to vote something we as women haven't always had. So let's start from the beginning. How did women's suffrage, uh, how did the movement come about and what was it that prompted women
1: to say, you know what, enough is enough? Well, I, th- I think one way to think about the whole question of women's suffrage is just to remember how long- a movement it was. I mean, we know that it culminated in the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920. But it's not as if a bunch of women woke up some morning in the 1830s and said, we need the vote. <laughs> we got to organize a movement that's going to go on for the next 90 years and hopefully finally be successful. So I think, you know, as his, as a historian, I look for the roots of a movement and this one very much uh, comes out of the abolition movement uh, to, to abolish slavery in the 1830s. And there were many women, black and white, who were involved in that struggle, men too. Uh, but they started making parallels <laughs> between their status as women Uh, in the United States and those of enslaved people. And so there's a really good kind of synergy between the emerging women's rights movement in the 1830s and 1840s and the movement to abolish slavery. So that's where I see it starting. I think the most um, well-known marker is a conference that was held in Seneca Falls, New York in 1848, and Seneca Falls is a very small town in upstate New York, and it seems like an unlikely place for the start of a major social movement, Uh, but it was a a conference where women came together and demanded a whole range of reforms, uh, legal reforms, access to education, property rights. And I think at the beginning, the women's suffrage movement was really the women's rights movement. And it was broader than just suffrage. After the Civil War, there is a a focus more on getting women the vote. But one of the things that's so distinctive about Seneca Falls is there in 1848, one of their demands is that women should have the
0: vote. You know, I had to ask you because I'm glad that you brought up Seneca Falls because July 19th actually marks the 175th anniversary of the Seneca Falls Convention.
1: So what ended up coming out of that? Well, I, th- I think the best thing the convention did was just to show that there was an issue that needed to be addressed and it brought together a range of women and male allies who then continued to work with each other uh, for this goal. And a lot of the early activity was really just educational, going out on the, you know, giving lectures, talking about women's rights. This was a very controversial issue at the time. Even the fact of women speaking in public was controversial. Why was it so, so controversial?
0: I know it was a different time, but um, are we, are we talking was, about the traditional life? And, you know, where, where did all of that controversy come from?
1: Well, there was a real sense that you know, women had their place and that it was primarily as wives and mothers in the domestic sphere. Now, women had been very involved in religious organizations, and they had been raising money and organizing things. They were not just sitting at home in front of their fireplaces. But when they began to demand the right to stand up at a meeting and speak, or possibly to be elected as an official of a group, this was more than a lot of people at first we were willing to go along with. But really, by the 1840s and 50s, it became much more acceptable for women to speak in public. And you've got to have that, because otherwise, how are activists going to get the word out? This is, I mean, there are newspapers, obviously, but one way of doing it is just to give a lecture or go to a meeting or give a speech and just by the very fact of women doing that it kind of made their point <laughs> that <laughs> they should have lives beyond just the domestic sphere so you know i think again it's part of my sense as a historian that even though the vote seems at first glance to be a fairly narrow or small a small reform or breakthrough it's always tied with much larger questions uh, and that we really need to think about it in that way. Right,
0: and you know, to advocate for change in this way really did take some strong women. Can you talk to me about some of the prominent leaders of the women's rights movement and then maybe touch on
1: some lesser known figures we may not know about? Well, I think that the best known suffrage leader, although when I say that, I have to realize that most people probably don't even know the name of one suffrage leader, Mm. but if they did, it would be Susan B. Anthony. And she was not at the Seneca Falls Convention, but she joins the movement soon after. And she forms an alliance with another upstate New York feminist, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And those two, along with Lucy Stone, were often the public face of women's rights activism. Really, through the rest of the 19th century, these were long-lived women. What we're also learning, and this especially came out in the um, recent centennial of the 19th Amendment, is looking looking at other less known women whose names weren't always recorded in the histories, the official histories. And many of those women are African-American women. And one of the most prominent uh, activists is Sojourner Truth, who was speaking out for women's rights, but also against slavery. And so you, you have this, these, this movement that is allowing a range of people to come together and advocate broader goals It also then sometimes sets up divisions within the movement, Mm. uh, and and one of them was over the issue of of Black rights, uh, especially after the Civil War. Um, That's a very complicated subject, um, but I think it again shows how these social movements are all interacting with each other, and there are lots of people involved, and it's not just the national leaders who tended to be white and live in the East, it's much broader than that. And one of the things that's that's always, I find interesting, is just to spread our net a little wider and see who we catch. And when we do that, we find much more activism all across the country from a range of women. And that, to me, is what makes the women's suffrage movement so fascinating and interesting yeah that
0: is really interesting and i want to that that's you brought up a good point i mean even though they were all advocating for the same thing given the people at the time in that group i'm sure it sounds like what you're saying is there were still tensions that existed within the group because you had a different range of people is that what you're saying
1: Yes, and and sometimes, um, let's be frank about this, uh, white suffragists like Elizabeth Cady Stanton basically said, why don't I, as a white woman, have a vote whereas a black man who recently was enslaved is allowed to vote because of the 14th, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment? And she is making a very racist argument for white women being given the vote because they will be use it better than black men. And there are examples of that uh, throughout the suffrage movement. Having said that, there's also a vibrant tradition in the African-American community of supporting votes for women, votes for men, especially after they're disfranchised uh, in the South because of Jim Crow, and a range of issues that will then feed into the 20th century civil rights movement. It's always much broader, especially for, for Black women than just the vote. So even though they were not always welcome in the women's suffrage movement leadership, that doesn't mean that they weren't active. And I think one of the problems when people sort of say, oh, the women's suffrage movement, they were all just racist, uh, and they were elitist. And at times they were, and I'm not denying that. But if you use that as an excuse not to then explore the complexity of the movement, you're basically writing Black women's activism out of history. And to me, that is not a good outcome. And I think one of the good outcomes of the recent centennial was just a much broader awareness of how vibrant this tradition had been in the African-American community. You had mentioned before on this podcast
0: that there are parallels between the abolition movement and the women's rights movement. Will you just expand
1: on some of those parallels? Really what we're talking about with rights, especially the right to vote, is citizenship and who is a citizen in America? And those questions come up for women because they really, even though they paid taxes, um, they lacked many of the basic benefits, rights of citizenship that were available to white men. The same thing was true of Black men who were often... Uh, denied the rights to full citizenship either by law or by custom, and so there is a way in which this outsider status and a desire to to basically make democracy live up to its all men are created equal ideals from the um, from the Declaration of Independence, with the idea that man is really about human beings. And that it is not just for whites, mm-hmm. uh, and so there is a very symbiotic relationship in in the arguments they're making, and and really what their ultimate goal is. And you know, one of the points I always try and make about the the suffrage movement is that you know, even though we think of 1920 and the passage of the 19th Amendment as as a victory it was not a victory for African-American women because if they lived in the South, they were disfranchised by Jim Crow laws, just as were black men, really until the 1965 Voting Rights Act. So for African-American women, 1920 isn't much of a milestone. But 1965, with the Voting Rights Act, is. Right. So uh, we talked
0: about the race aspect, the gender aspect. But what other political and cultural challenges did the movement face during the time? I mean, what were some of the most common arguments against suffrage?
1: Well, I think one of the things that's really important to remember is that there were a lot of people opposed to suffrage. That's one reason it took so long. And I think that a lot of it really came down to a fear of change, and the sense that if you allow women to vote, well, what's next? Are they going to abandon their husbands? Are they not going to have children? What what is going to happen? And it seemed like a slippery slope where you start Encouraging women to be people, and who knows where it would end? Now, of course, that's what the suffragists were saying. <laughs> They're saying, "Yes, this is what we want. Women are people too." Um, but there really was a sense that um, that people that it was a it was a change that was just a little bit was way too much for many for many people. There was there were also conservative arguments that. Women didn't need the vote um, because they had men, their husbands, their brothers, their fathers to vote for them. So they they were represented. Of course, not all women have a husband or a brother to take care of them. And you know, I think these arguments, had enough sway at a time, you know, remember in the late 19th century and the early 20th century is a time of profound social change in the United States with industrialization and with immigration. And it just seems like everything's up for grabs. And when all of a sudden women start agitating, um, I think that that was pretty scary And the other thing that we have to remember is that it's not just men who are opposed to women's suffrage. There were women who organized to oppose it, saying that they did not need or want the vote. Um, And part of that was because they saw politics as quite a dirty business. And, you know, remember back in the 19th century that voting took place in saloons and often involved uh copious amounts of alcohol and the thought that proper women would be putting themselves in that situation was really something that was just too far for for a lot of for a lot of women i think there were other challenges that had to be uh overcome you know i often get asked well how did they organize a movement without social media and <laughs> They had to figure out how to get their message across. And so for me, one of the most interesting parts of the suffrage movement is the last 20 years, really from, well, last 10 years from about 1910 to 1920, when women really literally took to the streets. They started having suffrage demonstrations and parades, and they were trying to get Publicity, which they did because it was still quite unusual to have tens of thousands of women marching up Fifth Avenue or marching towards the Capitol. And that's precisely what they were trying to do. And they really had to get the word out. They wanted people pro or con just to be thinking about women's suffrage. I think for most of the 19th century, it really wasn't on most people's radar. It was for those who were violently opposed and it was for those who were violently in favor. But for most people, it was kind of a ho-hum, you know, it's just not, not something that we're thinking about. By the early 20th century, it was something that society had to think about because the women were getting so loud in their demands and also because by then... Things were changing in women's lives that had moved far beyond the near total assumption that they would live domestic lives as only wives and mothers. The women were working, they were going to college, they were having careers, they were practicing birth control. There was a lot, a lot going on. Um, and they were strong, modern women. And they literally took to the streets. And then some of them took it even further, picketing the White House in 1917. Nobody else had picketed the White House before the women suffragists. And that got them arrested, thrown in jail, where they promptly protested the terrible conditions that they were being held under by hunger strikes. And the fact that women were literally willing to risk their lives for this cause was a very powerful statement um, in support of it. Wasn't the only thing that pushed it over the edge in 1920. There was a lot of Scott work that goes with political change. You have got to lobby state legislatures. You have to lobby Congress. You have to pass referendums. There is a lot to do. And this is what was happening all across the country and had been really for close to 90 years. Uh, And it finally comes together in a moment in 1920 when the 19th Amendment does finally pass. But it goes down to the last state, Tennessee, needed two-thirds, no, three-quarters ratification. And it passes by one vote. This was never a done deal, and I think that you know it's it's kind of hard for me to imagine women not having the vote. Who was that uh, one vote? Oh, it was a a man named harry Byrne, and his it was in Tennessee, and his mother lobbied him to do it, and he changed his mind from being opposed to being in favor. It's a very dramatic story. Um, Always listen to mom. Yeah, (laughs) it's a true story. uh, But again, I think it shows how closely fought this issue was
0: right up until the end. If I may, I want to quickly touch on something that you had said earlier, saying women uh, took to the streets. They picketed the White House during the course of the women's fight for the right to vote. A few different groups popped up. Will you just explain to listeners, you hear the word suffragettes and you hear the word suffragists. How are those different?
1: Okay, now I'm going to give my little history professor lecture. Um, The preferred term in the United States is suffragist. And this is the one that the women used. The term suffragette refers to the British suffrage movement, Mm. which was also quite militant and whose tactics one branch of the American movement adopted. But in this country, the use of the term suffragette was usually or almost always derogatory, it would be the the way that a newspaper headline would belittle the women's movement. It would say, oh, those saucy suffragettes or things like that. So I have always tried to be very, very careful about using the term suffragists or women's suffrage and leaving suffragette for the British movement. But I may be fighting a losing battle. I don't know. But it. <laughs> Maybe I've convinced one or two people on your podcast. (laughs) There you go. Well,
0: um, a lot of people thought women in 1920 were fighting a losing battle, but look what happened, Susan. Yes. (laughs) Um, You know, I'm curious, too, once women were able to get the right to vote, how did we see the landscape change? What happened and how did the vote shift if it did?
1: Well, I think one one reason it's hard to answer that question is. We don't really have polling data. Mm. It's not as if in 1920, women went and put their ballots in a pink box and men put theirs in a blue box. And then you could see who voted for whom and whether there was a a big difference. And until we get more sophisticated political science techniques for breaking down the vote, it, it really is actually... Uh, surprisingly hard to figure out what it what it meant it does seem that women tended to vote pretty much like the men of their social class so that it and that there really has never been a women's block or a women's vote and one reason is that women don't usually see themselves as a group Um, As we know today, there are huge differences between women in their approach to politics, whether they consider themselves feminists, all kinds of things divide women as much as unite them. And so the the women's suffrage movement actually never really claimed that women would vote as a bloc. They did, they were willing to sort of try to scare politicians who were opposed to women's suffrage by saying, oh, you better get on board because if you don't, next election, if we get enfranchised, we're gonna vote you out of office. And I, I think that helped a little bit. I mean, to me, it's more of just a statement, an incredibly important statement as of 1920, that women should be seen as citizens. Mm -hmm. And with the responsibility of voting, and then it was going to be up to women individually and collectively what they were going to do with that vote. And that's really what happens for the rest of the 20th century and what we're still dealing with today. But I think it is useful to remind ourselves, you know, try and imagine A society where women can't vote. Right. And imagine that society being now and cancel culture, Susan, no chance. Again, it's part of the reason why I think that suffrage and, and women winning the vote is a really fundamental breakthrough in terms of political history, not just for women, but for the country. This was the largest expansion of the electorate ever by enfranchising women and um this is a really important part of an ongoing story about the expansion of democratic rights how contested voting rights were at the time and they still are i don't need to remind people of that this is a this is a really important issue and women were at the center of it. Uh, And so I think it really behooves us to to treat the women's suffrage movement as an important part of the larger American history, uh, and give these women credit for what they were able to accomplish over, really, it took them three generations. And then watch, watch and analyze what has happened since then and realize that this is part of an ongoing story. Uh, women's politicization, what they do with their vote, what they do in politics. Um this is what this is still going on today and it's evolving. And it's a it's a fascinating story, but none of what's happening now would have happened without women getting the vote in nineteen twenty. Yeah, when you look back at the course of history and and
0: you look at we just celebrated the 4th of July and you realize what makes you so proud to be an American, it's that we get all of these freedoms. Everyone has the right to vote. And it's it's such a beautiful privilege that we get to enjoy in this country. So it's great to look back and look at the women who fought for that so that we could have that privilege. Susan, thank you so much for coming on Getting Schooled. I appreciate your uh, your insight into all of this. Well, thank you for having me. If you missed anything from class, these are my office hours, and here are some top takeaways about the suffragists. Number one, Susan highlighted the difference between the term suffragette and suffragist, emphasizing the latter is meant for Americans and the former is for the British. Number two, in the 19th century, voting took place in saloons, so proper women didn't necessarily want to put themselves in that situation. Also, even in 1920, it wasn't a done deal. The 19th Amendment was only passed by one vote. And number three, Susan also mentioned that a lot of times the different social movements would interact. She drew parallels between the abolition movement and the women's rights movement. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast on Suffragists. For more podcasts, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this one on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and leave us a review. This has been Getting Schooled with Abby Hornacek on the Fox News Podcast Network. Class dismissed. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.